Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Square Ball Podcast. Welcome to the show, brought to you by Levi Solicitors. 10% off your legal fees. LeviSolicitors.co.uk forward slash the square ball to claim your discount. I'm Dan, hello, and welcome along to this Angus Kinnear interview special. The full version of this, we made this available to our subscribers over on the Extra Ball. If you want to go sample that, you can do 30 days for free. And if you need to cancel, if you don't want to pay, that is absolutely fine. But we'd enjoy it if you went over there and gave this a whirl. The squareball.net forward slash the Extra Ball for the full one-hour version of this. Here, though, you get the full flavour of it, a 35-minute potted highlights version, like match of the day, but for an Angus Kinnear interview. And just to give you the background for this one, uh, Michael emailed Angus a little while ago and said, do you fancy coming on the podcast? Angus agreed to do so and invited us into the Ellen Road boardroom to go and record a show, which was great fun, getting to go inside the inner sanctum at Ellen Road, particularly when they brought the EFL Championship trophy in whilst we were doing the recording, which was like a boyhood dream come true, getting to get photos with the uh, with the trophy and, of course, giving it a kiss and all that. So we're really grateful uh, to Angus for hosting us at Ellen Road, particularly when it's so mad busy at the minute in the middle of August. So this one took place on Thursday, the 13th of August. Angus Kinnear interview. Enjoy. So Angus Kinnear, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. The natural place to start has got to be dicking around with the playoffs because we're not doing that anymore. One hell of a hill to die on, that one. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, it could have been the biggest mistake that any football chief executive's ever made. And when um, we saw the first uh, cut of the documentary, uh, our, my head of communication said, are you sure you want this in there? Because, you know, if we don't do it, you know, you will never be allowed to forget it. And I said, you know, I felt confident. So I said, no, no, we'll have it in there. That's exactly how I feel. You know, that's, that's, that's the ambition. Um, but when we won two games out of 10 post-Christmas, and people were shouting it at me in the street. I thought I maybe made a mistake, but um, it's lovely to be uh, to be proved right. But I think it I think it actually was representative of how confident people in the club felt that we were we were going to get it right this time. Is that where it came from? A position of you just felt certain that we were going to do it. We had a uh, meeting with uh, Marcelo in London after the end of the, you know, sort of probably a week after the, of, of the playoffs, and everyone was still pretty down. And Marcelo uh, did a uh, presentation around uh, his assessment of the season, what he needed to put right. And uh, he did the presentation and left. And I just turned to Andrea and, uh, and Victor and said, we're going to get promoted. He just was absolutely convincing in what we needed to do and, and, and what we needed to fix. So I felt really, I felt really bullish after that, you know, that he, he was committed to it. And he knew, I think, while he's the, the football master, he's always learning. And I think he felt he'd learned a lot about the championship and about the players and, and what we needed to do. And didn't think we'd go and win it by 10 points, but I'll take that. How did you experience promotion from a personal point of view? Because we saw lots of footage coming from 
inside the club of the players having a great time and uh, Victor having a very, very good time indeed. What about you? The Huddersfield second goal was, I mean, to be honest, it took me a little time just to to compute what what had, <laughs> what had happened. It wasn't a kind of immediate response, but I'd, I'd actually gone back down south to, to see, uh, see my kids and I'd been at home for an hour, watched the game. And when the, uh, when the second goal, I got straight back in the car and came up to Ellen Road and got here at nine, fought my way through the crowds to get, to the, to get, to get in here, got doused by um, Barry Douglas and Ben White with champagne and then, and then the rest of it's all pretty hazy. <laughs> Pablo's goal definitely was, I mean, there was just the excitement there. I mean, because it just felt, I mean, it, it seemed to be travelling so slowly, um, <laughs> you, you know, and you sort of saw the keeper kind of crawling after it and uh, when it hit the inside of the post. So that was, I think that was the moment we felt this is probably our year. We've, we've probably we've, we've probably got this. But I think what was great was the um, the professionalism the players showed. To I mean, how seeing the state of them pre Derby and then how they played at Derby was quite miraculous. And actually, the running stats at Derby away were the best of the whole season. So no team has worked harder than the, the than the post hangover team. Probably a level playing field at Derby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Diplomatic silence there. <laughs> So how does promotion, it seems like an obvious question, but how does it transform the club? We're in a position where we, we're taking some planned risks to get up. And I think you really have to do that. It's very difficult when you hear about clubs saying, you know, and we talked about this, we're going to have a five-year plan. We're going to build over time. We're going to, we'll bring youth players through and that's how we're going to secure promotion. The reality is that's, that's challenging. You look at the Brentford team now, Brentford team, unlucky. I think they were the second or third best team in the, in the league this season. They've just missed out they will do amazingly well to be able to keep that team together. So that idea of kind of being able to go again is, 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 is quite challenging. And we experienced it with, um, with Calvin uh, at the end of last season where he, you know, he really should have, should have left. He had an excellent offer to play in the Premier League with more funds. And so the danger of your team being broken up, and we, we knew if we didn't go up this season, that team would have been broken up because we couldn't have kept players and some of those players in the championship for, for another season. So there was... You know, a, a lot, a lot resting on it from a financial perspective, and we've spent the wage bill has has almost trebled since the Chilino days. And a lot of people don't see that, but when you when Liam Cooper becomes the best centre half in the league, we've had to move his salary to be in line with being the best centre half in the league to keep him. So you know, Andrea really went out on a limb from a from a wages perspective. So if we hadn't have gone up, it would have been very very challenging from a football perspective and challenging from a financial perspective. Now we're in the in the Premier League. We don't have to reset. We can continue the momentum that we've we've generated. So, being in the Premier League now, what what doors do you think it opens for the club? I mean, presumably there's a big impact on finances and the commercial ability for you to operate. I mean, from a play, from a player's perspective or from a footballing perspective, you know, it means we it means we keep the squad. It means we can attract a better quality of players. You've seen not just in the uh, um, not just I think some of the recruitment we'll do at first team level, but also you'll have seen some of the under twenty three signings we've made. They are a step up from the players that would have been available to us had we been in the championship. And I think that's really exciting because we think a combination of how we spot talent and, and Marcelo's commitment to develop the under-23s I mean we could have two or three players come through this year and make an impact in the Premier League. So footballing its, its side, it's, it's obviously hugely impactful. From a financial side, it, you know, we know Ellen Road will sell out when we get the crowds back. Sponsorship deals, uh, we secure a multiple of, of what we get. You know, so the, the shirt front deal will be 10 times the size of the deal we had previously. Um, the training wear deal, similarly, the, the, the sleeve deal will be 10 times more than the back of shirt. So those, those revenue streams grow exponentially. And as does the fan base, I think one of the things that we're excited about is 
Leeds have been out of the Premier League in the in the 16 years where the Premier League has grown the most aggressively internationally. And it's depressing that you can go to some corners of the world and people have heard of Bournemouth more than they have of Leeds United. And so I think we're looking forward to expanding the, the global fan base. In terms of like the Premier League revenue, can you give us a little insight into how that works in terms of, because, you know, people don't understand whether it's necessary you get one of the giant checks when you walk into the Premier League AGM or, you know, the money come out, come across to the club over the course of the season? You do get one very big, it, the check is perhaps not big in terms of physical size, <laughs> but, but the numbers on it are, are big. So yes, yeah, so you, you get a, um, we've had our first Premier League payment and it's a um, life-changing amount for, for a club of this size. We then receive more, it's a combination of media and Premier League sponsorship payments come through the season. And then your final payment is, um, is a merit-based payment, which is basically where you finished in the league. So you get £2 million a place, roughly, as you go up the league. And then you also get um, pretty much a million pounds for every time you're on television as well. So I thought we'd have a... I know this worked, worked brilliantly on radio, but I thought we should have this in the room, wow. at, the, in, at, the room at the same time. The trophy has entered the room, and it is a gorgeous thing, I have to say. Look at that. Only it's been knocked back into shape after it was dropped a few times. Yeah, it's ba- it was bounced around the, uh, the the lower concourse, but I think it's uh, it's uh, it's looking okay now. <laughs> when it comes to the size of the club, do you think you've got a firm handle on the pressure that comes from the fans and the noise and the criticism that's directed towards the club? Do you understand that that kind of comes from a place of anxiety that's grown over the last couple of decades? Yeah, I, th- I think the um, the pressure of, and I think it's I think it's partly to be, to do with being a um, a one club city as well. The the pressure that you feel being part of this club is is unlike either of the other clubs that that, 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 I've, that I've worked in, and I certainly felt that you certainly felt the anxiety because I think we've had two seasons of disappointment as, as custodians, but I know there's been another fourteen before that. And um, that anxiety can make Ellen Road a hard place to play and it can make a hard place to manage the club because everyone's so desperate to do well. But I have to say, I think this season, when the club is united, and I think we were, as, as sort of new owners, were probably rightly treated with a level of distrust based on the people who've been previous, you know, been previous in, there's sort of suspicion in terms of motives and, and what we're trying to achieve. But I think this year there's been a unity between the fans, the players and the board that hasn't existed previously and and I've always felt if we could get the city unified and the club unified you know we are unstoppable and there should be no limit to our to our ambitions and that's happened this year and you know it's it's I think you, you guys were talking about the, you know the other day about uh, who's had a bad season at Leeds United we haven't had a player really who had a bad season and, and if people are you know perhaps people have their perspective, perspectives on whether people are of the right quality or not but absolutely no one could ever criticise the work rate or the endeavour or the, or, the, or the commitment. And the fan, bases, the fan base have been phenomenal. You know, we asked them to, we said we wanted Ellen Road packed to, to give us the best chance. They've packed Ellen Road. We've got, um, I think by the end of this week, we'll have 20,000 people on the season ticket waiting list that we started a week ago. We put membership on general sale yesterday and sold 6,000 memberships in three hours. You know, shirt sales are four times what they were two and a half seasons ago. So to be honest, the, the scale of the club, it does continue to surprise me, but in a in a sort of delightful way. It feels like how it should be here. Arsenal have got a waiting list. West Ham have got a waiting list. You know, it feels like we should have we should have Odom. You know, we should have a bigger stadium. The stadium should be at fifty thousand, and that's that is now a firmer part of our of our plans. You know, and I think what's also great is is you have the the kind of hardcore fan base, but it is also great for the city as well. It's lovely to walk through the city and people to feel proud about what's happened and what they're part of. And I think it was I think the way the club was run historically was almost. You know, almost a source of embarrassment for, for people who perhaps weren't fans, but it, you know, just we just didn't have the club that the city deserved. 
I think the fans felt they were sort of being punched in the face by the by the club they loved, and we just wanted to create a, an environment where even if we weren't getting it right, there was a level of belief that the the intentions were were, were, were well founded. And I think, and I think you know we've we've got that now. And it, Andrea has never been scared to invest in the scale of the club. You know, when we go to him and say we want to open a store in White Rose, a store in Trinity, a store at the airport. Yes, I support it. You know, we want to go on tour to Australia. Yes, I support it. You know, he's got big ambitions. And I think actually even the Australia tour at the start of the season was, as well as, you know, everyone enjoying, I think the players, when they're playing against Manchester United in front of 55,000 people, 10,000 miles away from home, of which a good third of the crowd were Leeds United fans. I think they all thought this is where Leeds United should be. This is what we should be doing. In terms of the expansion and um, the next phase of development that you touched on there, uh, with the stadium, presumably, I know the, the the whole training ground thing that's probably going to come first. And but the West Stand is the, is the obvious place to start. And um, can you give us an insight into the plans for that? Redeveloping the West Stand could take the capacity up to to fifty thousand, and that's what I think is a very achievable level for Leeds United to ensure that you're always sold out. That's the key. You want to, you want to make sure even for smaller games you're, you're sold out. So we we've now started to formalise the plans for how do you redevelop that stand whilst you have to do it within a season within a season so how do you how do you manage your capacity and keep your capacity high during the time and there are ways that that that, that can be achieved so you're not lo- losing too many seats but it's also be about professionalizing the whole of that side of the, of the ground ultimately you know the changing rooms on that side haven't changed the referees facilities the media facilities they are all outdated you know we've got seats in the upper tier of the west stand which can have restricted views because there's pillars in the way the press areas aren't big enough for the premier league the floodlights aren't bright enough for the Premier League, so the flight. So that will also it not only will be able to get you know fifteen thousand more supporters in the stadium, but we'll also be able to make it a more professional and uh, functional environment for the first team as well on a match day. Do you think you'd be looking at a full rebuild then for the for the West End yeah, from the ground? Yeah, it, it, it needs to come come down and, and and start again. In terms of club image, we've got to talk about the badge. Uh, yes, <laughs> because uh, it's one of the, the hot potatoes. Everybody likes to talk about it in the same way they do with the kits, and I think it's all to do with the fact that you know, our identities are so enmeshed in that badge and, and the shirt and that kind of thing. And do you accept that perhaps we've got it a little bit wrong and lessons being learned about the salute badge? I think it was very clearly wrong. <laughs> um, I think the, um, again, I think the intent was, the intent was, was right. I actually think there are no plans to change the badge. You know, we're, we've got bigger things to worry about at, at, at the moment. I think the badge versus some of the badges, historically, it's one of the one of the weaker ones. We don't think it's the strongest identity for the for the club. And other fans don't like it. Is from an international perspective, the fact it doesn't have your own name on it doesn't help. So practically, that's probably not what you would design. And ultimately, you know, the, the elements of it have little meaning to to Leeds United. So I think it can be improved upon. I think we were trying to be um, you know be really differentiated and bold and do something which no one had done before. But then it's like we were talking uh, before we started recording about the, the charcoal and pink kit and the impact that's had. And it's, every, it's gone from a position of, well, that's not traditional. We can't have that to be the best selling shirt we've ever had. We really want to continue continue innovating. And, and as we said, I got more letters on the charcoal and pink kit than, than any other subject since the badge. Um, fans saying it was disgraceful and, uh, you know, sullied the club's history and, and uh, um, you know, in the centenary year. It's been the best selling kit in the history of Leeds United, and it's unusual when an away kit outsells a home kit. But to outsell every home kit we've had we've had previously means that we got it right. And I think on kits and and the kits will be coming out in the next few weeks. If we get it right, there will be some things which a younger audience will love and they'll embrace, and it will buy them into Leeds. And at the same time, it will probably offend some traditionalists, and we have to accept that. But we've got a very uh, the shirt market is a very broad church. You know, you've got 
women, men, two-year-olds, 72-year-olds. So the idea is to come up with a, uh, with a range of kits which appeal to all those groups, uh, honour the club's heritage, but also at the same time, you know, move us forward. And in the same way that I know, you know, people who were, who were in their teens in the 70s will love a yellow kit or, or, or always want to be classic, classic white. I think there will be people growing up in 20 years' time and their favourite kit will be the charcoal and pink kit where Leeds won the league. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think the thing for me is I think it was it was it was right for fans to to be you know I think the upset around the crest was understandable because it because it is our identity if you didn't like it and you didn't buy into what it was saying then it was it was right to to vent against that I think the kit pieces you know the kits are transient you have to accept that you know it's a commercial product these will always play in a white kit at home but there will be lots of variation in the the second and the uh, and the third and um, it's probably not one to get too upset about I quite enjoyed with the badge that. It was very quickly backtracked on, at least, because it, it sort of was launched. I can't remember what time of day it was, but by the time I was driving home from work in the evening, you were on Radio Leeds going, we're going to look at this. Maybe yeah, it, it was. A, <laughs> We've had about 160,000 people side of position by now, so maybe maybe this isn't the best way. I think when I got I got a text from one of my friends saying, you've broken the internet. Um, and it was at that point I realised it, it wasn't going to work. No, I, and that's, that was, in fact, somebody wrote to me and said that they thought it was just a, a brilliantly engineered PR stunt to show the club was on the same side of the fans. I was thinking, yeah, that's, that is exactly what we did. <laughs> but I think what it did, what it did demonstrate, it demonstrated we we were listened and we're, we're prepared to hold our hands up when we when we've got it wrong. We've demonstrated that on the football side as well. When there's been a shift in strategy, when you know we, we sat down with Andrea and we had a five year plan and we wanted to build with a young coach, we wanted to build with a young team. You know, we learned very quickly that you don't have that luxury, firstly in the Championship, and you don't have that luxury at Leeds United. And we need to, we need to accelerate the plan, invest ahead of the curve. So if you you know if you speak to you know, Victor or Andrea, you know, did we get it wrong in the in the first two seasons? We did with our approach, but we're not too proud to to say we did and, and, and change the strategy. And I think we showed that on the badge. You know, we we got it wrong. We listened to the fans. I think it will always be a, a, a an element of the rich history of Leeds of, Le- of Leeds United. But ultimately, you know, I, th- I think most fans. We actually got a lot of letters, a lot of correspondence from fans saying, for once, someone's listened. You know, I think they'd have thought in perhaps previous regimes. 
it had been forced through and it would have been almost a point of principle that we're the owners, we do what we like. And, you know, it was a, Le- it was a Leeds United badge, I think, for about five and a half hours. With that change, how, how much of that was led by being able to get Bielsa? Because it was, I mean, the Heckingbottom appointment seemed, it seemed like a bit of a, a last minute, let's throw him in, see if it works, if he can get us into the playoffs for this season. But then to go from, from that and Christensen, while he did quite well to begin with, he was obviously a relatively cheap appointment compared to someone like Bielsa. Was this change in strategy led by the fact you were able to get him? There was a change in strategy that we needed to try and get a coach of that calibre. I think what we, what we learned with Thomas, you know, Thomas was part of our plan. We thought he, could have, he was a coach that could develop with Leeds United and, and if he was given time. And he actually did get off to a good start. Could have been right. But we understood, you know, after 16 years, Leeds United is not a club where you can have time. You need to deliver. You need to deliver straight away. And so we felt we needed a coach who, who one, could, could create the level of cultural change that we think needed to be at Thorpe Arch because the level of professionalism there wasn't, wasn't where it needed to be. But it was also a manager who probably could weather some of the storms of things not going very well. And I think you know, Marcelo's managed to, managed to do that. You know, after the playoff, eight, nobody, I, didn't, I don't think anybody, I had any correspondence from anybody saying he's the wrong guy. Everyone was still, no, he is, he is the man. The 10 games after Christmas and nothing for us. Nobody was saying he's not the he's not the right. There was right. someone on Radio Leeds actually, but okay, very very <laughs> very you know very few. And I think I don't think a younger, less experienced manager could have survived those those moments. So the strategy was there. I think you know what we managed to do with with securing Marcelo is is deliver above the sort of benchmark we'd set in terms of the manager we wanted. But the, the next the next coach was always going to be somebody more experienced somebody of a higher higher caliber somebody who we think was more immediately able to to address the challenge this is where you know andrea's ambition you know, his, his, his expectations for leeds united are you know as big as any club and that can be frustrating can be frustrating at times to try and manage but he was you know, as i've told us to say the story before you know when they've talked about marcelo bielsa i just sort of just chuckled to myself you know, I was just not he was like, no, no, you, you and victor you go out you go and meet him you, you'll persuade him and i think that level of ambition of thinking you know this coach is not too good for Leeds United. You know, there's no coach which is too good for Leeds United. Was bold and and ultimately, you know, when you see what Marcelo's done behind the scenes in terms of the professionalism and the work ethic at Warp Arch, it really has been a, a cultural change, and it's actually impacted Ellen Road as well because he's just set a new standard that that everybody now aspires to. Yeah, one of the questions I've actually got jotted down is what effects has he had on the club as a whole? But you've just answered that. I'm keen to find out what your first impression was of him when you flew over to meet him. He was just. He's he's hugely intense. So it was, you know, we, I think we, the first day we had a ten or twelve hour meeting, and it was just no, there was no let up. I think he had a break to get his hair cut at one point, but that was it. And he he wrote everything. He had card after card after card of formations. He didn't know the players' names, but he knew them all by number. You know the level of detail he went into, and, and he said some, you know, he said things, you know, that he would make. I think he said he would make Stuart Dallas, Liam Cooper, and Calvin Phillips said, you know, they will be the best players in the league. You know, sort of looking at Victor going, you know, who is, who is, I mean, I, I like them all as players, but I didn't think they could be the best players in the game. And, he, and he, he's, you know, he did that on video analysis and he's been absolutely true to his, true to his word. But it was odd because I was expecting there for, to go there for a contractual negotiation and, and to get the deal signed. And we just spoke about formations and famously we talked, I said, you know, what does he know about the championship? And he said, um, I'll tell you why Burton beat Birmingham 2-1. It's because they played 4-4-2. And, and he said, in 90% of occasions, they'll win that game against this team. And so not only, I think it sort of gets lost in translation, but not only had he watched every Leeds United game by the time he went out to see him, but his staff had watched every championship game. So they had analysis on every single, cha- on every single championship game. 
So the sort of argument of, you know, which you could have said, oh, well, you know, what's Marcelo Bielsa going to know about the championship? Everything. <laughs> Everything was the answer. Is he, is he just keeping those people on a payroll then? Because he was not employed by anyone at this point. He, he, ha- he has. I can only describe them as disciples. There are, just, there are disciples all around the world who work for him in terms of just assessing developments in, in football. And, you know, he, he will come and sort of, he'll be, one of them will have told him about, you know, a team in Algeria where the goalkeeper's playing in the back four. And like, I want to see all the videos of that game. You know, so it's, it's remarkable. And it, it, it's a part of the challenge for me as a, as a football fan is I kind of got to remember I'm doing, I've got a job to do because I get a little bit of an imposter syndrome when I'm just thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm just listening to one of the best coaches in the, in the world and I'll wax lyrical for 10 hours. Just pretending to understand what he's on about. They're <laughs> showing you cards going, oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking that as well. He actually makes you, so I, you know, I've worked in the game for 15 years and I've loved it. Like you guys all, you know, all, you know had a season ticket at a club since I was seven. I think I know the game. But the level of insight he, he puts into the game, you just realise you don't, you don't really understand it at all. Yeah, that's one of the things I've found watching this is I've learned from watching his teams and I've realised I know nothing about football because we all sit there, don't we, in, in the stadium thinking, oh, why is he playing him there? Or what's this happening for? Or what's that player being brought on for? Now I just sit back and go, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. But, you know, occasionally you might make the mistake of offering a football opinion, which he will then completely disconstruct and prove, you why, you know, prove, prove why you're wrong. But he does it in a way where he, he loves the art of understanding standing the game. So, you know, he will, you, know you, you might mention a player, you know, it's a player quick enough to play in that position. And he'll say, wait. And he'll send off and then the guy will come back with three bits of video. And he'll talk you through the three bits of video and say, that's why it's quick enough. So, you know, his level of insight, I mean, he's a talk about people being students of the game. He is he's just a master. How does he compare to Wenger, who you've obviously worked with at, at Arsenal? Is he, did he have a similar impact of the club as a whole and also and from that I guess Wenger having left and Arsenal love lost their way to a large extent like how do you go about protecting against that once, once yeah I think, I think that there's a lots and lots of there's lots of parallels so Arsenal was the same you know just controlling over every aspect of the club he'd seen the club grow from you know not being successful to being fantastically successful at Highbury to the move to the Emirates and he's his sort of um his personality and kind of principles just impacted every single area of the club which is great when everybody's aligned behind behind something. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of rubbish kind of management story about um, American president who goes to NASA when they're about to, they're about to uh, um, it's a space race. And he's, there's one guy sweeping in the corner. He says to the guy, you know, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm just trying to put a man on the moon, sir. And that's what it feels like under Marcelo Bielsa. You, know, you speak to the people in the ticket office. You know, what are you trying to do today? We're trying to get promoted. And... It would make a sort of, you know, if you care about stuff, it would make a brilliant business school case study of somebody who's just, you know, who just changed everything. And we talked about the first day at the training ground and he saw a mark on the wall and it was where someone had been resting their heel as they sat. As they, and he goes, you know what that shows me? It shows you that there are people here who are not fully employed and they have no respect for the facilities. Um, we're like, yeah, taking my hands out of my pockets. And, you know. So he, he's very like Arsene in terms of, in terms of there is a pervasive influence of, of excellence and not settling for second best. But we are, you do need to protect against the fact that he's, he's not going to be with us forever. Don't say, don't say that. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> he is. And, and we, need, we, need to put, we, need to, we need to put the sort of process in place that people are, are trying to embrace those things. And, you know, we have some succession planning. And that what's great is, you know, he loves, he spends as much time with the under-23s almost as he does, you know, with the first team. He sort of obsesses on them. And um, that cascade of, of kind of knowledge and practice through the club it's something that all our coaches are benefiting from so although he has a core team we also have people around you know people around um like like Carlos Cobaran who ultimately have spent time with him and you know we 
who knows, Carlos may come back one day because he's, uh, you know, he understands the, the, the lead's way. So we, we're trying to Im- embed a lot of the thinking. Uh, Marcelo has said, and I think one of the reasons we've kept him is because we've been able to give him everything he needs. I think, you know, the reason he spent a short time at other clubs is if you let him down, and it can be one of the things, he, he doesn't really tend to sort of look at the magnitude of issues. If it's, an issue is an issue for him. So if the, if the car parking lay out at the front of the stadium, he said it caused disorder when people arrived in the morning and they weren't starting their day prom. And he needed to have it, you know, he needed to have it fixed. That is as big an issue for him as Pablo being out for, you know, six weeks. And what we've been able to do is have a team which will be able to address those issues. You know, we've delivered for him at the training ground. We've delivered for him at transport. We've delivered him on pre-match preparation. I think he's been appreciative of that and said, I've got a, I've got a team that, you know, He's got a fantastic relationship with our with our stadium manager who just spends hours and hours with him and he, as he's asking him to remove hills from the training ground or, you know, um, which is the one we've got, you know. And so I think it's a, it's a credit to everyone around the club that, that there are clubs which haven't been able to kind of accommodate Marcelo Bielsa and we, we have. He's staying then? Because as, as we sit here, we, well, we still don't know about a contract having been signed. Yeah, the, um, we're, we're, we're really close and just that hill needs removing. The hill needs. Well, this is this is exactly the um, this is this is the, the the challenges that he's so fixated on the preparations for next season that the, the contract plays a, a secondary role. It doesn't for us, you know, it, it we would like to announce it, but you know, every meeting that you know, Victor and I meet with him pretty much daily at the moment, and every meeting is more around changes he wants to make to the training ground, the players that we're looking at, how we're going to develop the under twenty threes, how we're going to backfill you know Carlos's role and then we might get a little bit to the contract at the end just sneak it under his nose and make, just, <laughs> so, just, just, write, just write your name on there and we'll do the rest so it's a it's um it's a slow process but all, all I what all I can take is that is that uh, there's nothing from a commercial perspective that we there's no difference between him and the club so we're, we're aligned on all the principles and all I can take is how that his focus on getting ready for the new season is his priority and, and that that's good enough for me at the moment I'm gonna be naughty now and ask you about Ben White because it's the big transfer that everyone's been talking about or possible transfer. Can you give us a little bit of insight onto that um, and how possible you think it might be? Is that maybe the right way to phrase that question? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be incredibly challenging. I think is the, is the, latest, the latest position. We've made no secrets of how highly we rate Ben. You saw what he did this season. I think we could have done without him ripping one into the top corner in the last game. As everyone else celebrated, I just had my head in my hands. Another five million. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, the reality is he is, did a wonderful job for us, but he's a Brighton player. They rate him very, they rate him very highly. I'm sure they see us as a, as a rival. There is competition for his position at Brighton. I would imagine they're going to be giving him, they'll need to give him a level of confidence that he's going to be, he's going to be selected, you know, week in, week out. The conversations are, just, uh, are continuing, but we, we have to be respectful of Brighton's position and the fact that he is, he is their player. There is no lack of financial commitment in terms of trying to secure him, but there comes a point where you have to accept that it's not going to happen and you don't pursue someone for too long at the expense of other targets. We have two or three other names in that group for that, in, 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 that, in terms of, of, of that position who... Uh, Supporters should be should be really excited about, and emotionally it won't have the same uh, the same uh, um, appeal as, as getting Ben back. But um, if it doesn't work with Ben, then then I think we've got some uh, we've got some good cover lined up. Uh, just move on to the 49ers quickly, then we'll we'll let you get on your way because we've kept you for quite a long time now. But how's that relationship? And Andrea spoke in the I think it was the when he dealt with the uh, the press junket after the club was promoted and said that they needed to step up. Can you shed a bit of light on on those comments and maybe? what that means and, and what their involvement with Leeds is presently and perhaps going forward. 
so the, the day-to-day involvement is is uh, Parag Marate is on is on the board. He's a very seasoned sports executive, fantastic experience at the at the, at the 49ers. And when Andrea originally looked for increased investment, the idea was that the 49ers would bring more than just money, and they've they've certainly done that. You know, we've we've been across to uh, to the 49ers on, on a couple of occasions. We've we've learned about how they develop their players technically, about how they use it statistically, how they manage contracts. So there's been a, a big um, information exchange. And we benefit from Parag's counsel on the board on a, on a day-to-day basis. The question that, that we're, we're asking now is, is, you know, as we step up to the next, next level, you know, what is the level of funding that's required to get Leeds back to where they belong? And I think whilst we're excited about getting promoted, on one hand, you know, Leeds should be in the Premier League, so we've only got back to where, where we should be, and not that that shouldn't be any less enjoyable. It really is now. Is you know how do you how do we make ourselves, firstly, solidify a position in the Premier League so you can build on the basis you know you're not going to go down, and then how do you start attacking the the top six? And that will require additional funds. We've got lots of people interested in the club now. I think the club is is probably the most investable proposition in in world football. There's no club with as much upside potential as there as there has been in, in Leeds United. The 49ers will be part of those conversations. Um, they're very well connected as well as, as as having funds themselves. And I think over the next 12 months we'll see um we'll see further investment which will give Leeds a chance to really kick on at the, the highest level. The other group we seem to have stepped away from a little bit. I know when we spoke to you a couple of years ago we were when Bravo was on the board still and there seems to be an almost half formalised link with the Aspire Academy stuff. Is the club still involved with that side of things, or is that is that something we're not particularly looking at anymore? Since Ivan stepped down from the uh, the board, there's, there's less of a relationship there. We still have we still have access to the Aspire health facilities for for rehabilitation and for and for medical medical treatment. We still have access to their network of clubs, but it's certainly less a less formalised partnership than it was when we when we started. And that obviously taps back into Qatar and uh, QSI and, and the story that won't go away. I think uh, you know a lot of that story is is founded on Andrea's good friendship with with NASA. You know we've we've met NASA. I know Andrea and, and NASA talk about Leeds and PSG all the time. It certainly does no harm to have those types of friendships and those types of of relationships. But there's there's been nothing formal. And you feel like that needs to happen then to kick on over the next sort of twelve months, two years. Is is that the outside investment is is the likely strategy? Yeah, either from the current ownership group or from outside. I think that's the, 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 the strategy. I think without that, it is um, it's challenging to, to to compete in the Premier League. And you'll see, you know, some clubs have adopted the model of not over investing, accepting that they might be relegated, have a good season in the Championship, and then and then go up again. And that sort of you know, that kind of no, no one wants to be a yo-yo team, but I think clubs accept that there is a there is a successful financial model in in doing that. That can never be Leeds United's objective. We need to we need to kick on. I think we're not dicking around with relegation. Exactly that. Um, the, <laughs> just just um, clean edit point. Just, just say that for a second. Not saying that. Um, the um, uh, the I think that the, the the challenge for the challenge for us is, is there is no proven formula to solidify your position in the in the in the Premier League. You know, you look at you know you look at last season. You look at Norwich not doing very much, struggling. Aston Villa doing a huge amount, struggling equally. Sheffield United doing somewhere in the middle and doing fantastically well. So money's not not the only answer, but it is an it is an important part. And when you start to speak to to, to teams about players that are of interest to us, there is just a level that you have to be able to to reach. You know, if you spend if you spend ten million pounds, you don't get a guaranteed Premier League success anymore. In fact, even twenty million pounds, you don't. And uh, and so so the fund, funds continue to be important. And whilst our revenues have grown dramatically, so have the costs of acquiring the right talent. 
So doing the maths on that, by the sounds of what you've said, with three or four players coming in and shopping in that sort of ballpark, you're looking at what seventy five million, hundred million just to just to compete. Yeah, it, it, it's that type of level when you when you look at agents' fees, uh, wages, and the, the transfers and bonuses. That's the type of level you need to you, you need to be at, and it can be spread out over 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 time. But um, you know, you are looking at ten to twenty million to get players that have a chance of competing at this this level. It's crazy, isn't it? The world has changed since <laughs> we were last year. Give us a message for Leeds fans about this upcoming season. What would you say? I think they should be excited. They should be confident. They should, as they have done this, enjoy the journey. I think it's going to be, you know, we won't be scared of anybody. We'll play swashbuckling football. I'm sure Marcelo won't compromise on his on his principles. I would say that we need to um, we need to keep the faith because they're going to be they're going to be tough moments. You know, you look at you look at the fix. You know, when the fixture list comes out, you know, it's going to, there's going to be some daunting names on, on there. So I think we need to the spirit of unity that we've had this season. I'd ask fans to try and replicate even in the. Even in, the, even in the tough moments. And then I think the final thing is ask the supporters to, to work with us as we, as we try and return the crowds back to Ellen, to Ellen Road because our best chance of phasing the crowds back as quickly as possible is for, is for everyone to cooperate with the, with the new way that we're going to have to, we're going to, have to watch football for, the, for, for hopefully a short time. But I think if, if we all work together, we can get as many fans in as possible as quickly as possible. Do you have any insights to how that's going to work yet? In terms of, will it be sort of space in between seats or is the one-way systems and stuff is there all that kind of thing yeah it's it, already it, been planned it, it's all of that so in the stadium bowl it's actually relatively straightforward because it's just about agreeing what the social distancing parameters are and whether you you know so you can have small family groups but they need two seats between them but then do they need two seats behind them as well or two seats in front of them so what is that what's the makeup of how you get people how you situate people in the in the stands themselves but then actually equally challenging are things like the concourses. You know, can you serve food and drink in the concourses, which are actually undercover and where people are much, you know, much closer together? What does entry and egress look like? Again, that's when you've got tens of thousands of people standing in close proximity as they leave the stadium. But we've been encouraged because the, um, you know, the Premier League are being very proactive in trying to come up with the solutions and, and helping government get supporters back. As, as quickly as they possibly can. But it is going to be challenging for supporters because it's going to be a situation where you know, we're going to have to have you know, season tickets are going to have to be issued on rotation or, or balloted or, or you know, to, to give everybody a chance to come to, to some games. But everybody's not going to be able to come to the first matches. And one of the challenges that we have is the stadium is now packed. So actually in the lower leagues, if you look at Leagues 1 and Leagues 2, which have sort of operated at 50% capacity, already got a sort of level of social distancing. We've got every single seat sold at the moment. So it's 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 going to be tough for fans. Sounds like a logistical nightmare, doesn't it? I'm glad it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> really, I'm, um, Angus. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We'll let you get going now. I think Brighton might be on the phone. So good luck. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. The Square Ball Podcast.